Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about Special Ops Lioness, the spy thriller series currently airing on Paramount+. And my guest is the score composer, Andrew Lockington. Andrew, welcome to Below the Line. Hey, Skid. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. And for the first time here on Below the Line, I've got a co-host, composer and recording artist, Louis Weeks. Louis, welcome back to the show. Good to be here. Hey, Louis. Hey, Andrew. A warning for listeners, today's conversation may contain spoilers, but not for anything that hasn't been on the air. Andrew, start us off. Talk to me about working with Taylor Sheridan on this show. So Taylor Sheridan and I were introduced by a mutual friend, uh, music supervisor Andrea von Forrester, uh, maybe three or four years ago. And um, I was fortunate enough to work with him initially on Mayor of Kingstown, and we got on really well. And uh had a very unique way of working that we were then able to apply to this show, Special Ops Lioness, when it came about. He's a incredibly fascinating human being. He's an amazing storyteller and writer. He wrote the Sicario films. He wrote Hell or High Water. He wrote and directed Wind River. He's famous for all of the Yellowstone universe that uh, I think was his first foray into television series. So I feel really lucky to get to work with him. And he and I have really um, connected and have a very uh, similar view on how music should work in storytelling. Andrew, talk to me a little bit about how working with Taylor may be different than other um, creatives you've worked with in the past. So as a film composer, TV composer, uh, so often you end up coming into the process fairly late. And by the time you get hired and start collaborating, the project has been shot, edited together, there's temp music. And a lot of the discussion ends up being, we like this temp music, we don't like this temp music. And that start, that's sort of a starting reference point for what you do. It doesn't mean you do exactly that. It doesn't mean that you even go in that ballpark. Often it's an example of what they don't like but it is always a reference point. And working with Taylor on, on this show and on Mayor of Kingstown, we started very differently. We started talking about music before he shot it. He'd finished writing and uh, he sent me the scripts and I started writing ideas that were either theme ideas or just sort of, um, I don't know, like a Pinterest board of sound, essentially, just different ideas, sketchboard of sound, and would send it to him. And he would respond and say, I like this, I don't like this, you know, this would be perfect for this. And we, uh, the initial reference, thankfully, ended up being an early, like my initial ideas, my instinctual, not going to think too hard about this, I'm just going to throw a bunch of tracks down and, and see what sticks. So out of that, and again, this process started on Mayor of Kingstown and continued on Lioness, but he sent it to his editor. And as they were shooting and putting together uh, assemblies, Chad Galster, the, the editor in both cases, the, his, the senior editor, would start temping my music to cuts and start cutting with my music in his temp, just sketch ideas. But it, it really um, helped shape where the score would go and how Taylor thought of the show and 
how I would end up writing. You know, I would get finished cuts with sketches that I wrote that were my ideas uh, tempt in and could use that as our starting point instead of someone else's score. The collaboration between composer and filmmaker and composer and showrunner, audio medium and a visual medium, I always find to be really kind of a exciting and often like fraught relationship. Hmm. And I'm wondering what kind of shorthand did you and Taylor develop? What kind of language did you use to talk about the music? You know, talking about music is kind of like dancing about architecture, right? It's it's a little bit of a mixed metaphor sometimes, but it's it's crucial in order to get the results you want. So what were some of the conversations that you might have had about a cue? Like, is it mostly about the, how it's feeling or does it get technical? Does it get kind of musical in, in the way that you assess it together? I mean, every situation is different, but as fellow composers, Louis, we probably both have experiences that run the breadth of all of what you've just said. Some are extremely specific and say, this should be a cor anglais, this should be this instrument. Others are, you know, I like to use the metaphor, they tell you, we want to end up in Montana. You drive the bus to Montana, we don't care how you get there, just get there. Mm -hmm. And and Taylor is definitely more that. Our conversations are all very much how how do you want to feel? What's some of the subtext going on between the characters? What do these two characters have in common, even though they'll never discuss it and we'll never see it? And he really thinks of music in the same way I do, that it has the ability to cross scenes, cross cuts, cross characters in a way that that visually you can't in your storytelling. And so I I feel like score can sometimes bring us back towards a novel. You have the ability to draw connections between characters who never meet. And um, so, so to go back to your question with Taylor, yeah, our conversations are mostly about character and story. And a lot of the storylines that aren't in the dialogue, that aren't in the, the action or the narrative, but that the music can comment on and make connections with. One of my favorite anecdotes is that Spielberg called John Williams the the last and final writer of all of his movies, hmm. just in the way that music has a way to like tease out insights about the story that maybe aren't on the page, but that are felt by the audience. Was there anything in the story that you felt like once the music started to form, it gave you and Taylor an insight into the characters or into the story that maybe wasn't explicitly on the page, but the music really made it concrete and made it, oh, this is, there's an element to the story that the music now is in, in conversation with. Yeah, I, I would say yes. I think going back to your comment about music being able to, I don't think you said flavor, but thinking of it sort of as a, as tipping it one way or the other, that can work for you and against you. Like, and I, and specifically on Lioness, there were some scenes where I'd either intended on being very cold with the music and then the character played it and acted it very cold. And I realized, oh, okay, I need to be the one to hint here at what's going on under this abrasive, defensive exterior. And then the opposite, where the character gets emotional and I'd imagined them not getting emotional. So I have to be restrained in that emotion. Years ago, I was really lucky to do a film with Donald Sutherland, who I'm uh, happy to say remains a friend to this day. And I mean, one of my favorite actors of all time, and it was just a pinch me moment to get to 
write a score for him, something he was directing and acting and, and producing. And so he and I had the conversation about, I said to him, you know, how does an actor feel when the music comes on? And if the actor has been, has really dialed it to within a micrometer, you know, of being emotional just enough or not enough, or, you know, they've just walked that tightrope. And then the music comes in and stands on the balance pole and whips them off the, the tightrope. And he said quite the opposite, actually. He said that when he's acting, he's very aware of what the music will be doing and how they will grasp onto something. So often his being, you know, shy about being too emotive or his restraint is on purpose, knowing that the post and the music will actually take it the proper amount. And he said that he would even ask sometimes if the director thought this scene would be scored, will there be music here? Because that would actually dictate how he would act the scene. So it was fascinating to find out that the actors on the other side of the, the process are as aware of us, because as a composer, you assume you're sitting in a basement in a closet somewhere and no one really knows where the music comes from. Right. And to your point, it's so often a post-production decision being part of the production, even before you even start just in the minds of, of the people making it is, it's wonderful to hear that. I know there are a lot of productions that don't think that way, but it sounds like just getting to all the sketches that you did and all the writing that you did in the beginning, seems like it informed all of the shooting and all of, even the acting going forward. And I think that that's a really rare thing. I mean, is that, is that, that's not very common in your world, is it? So it's funny you say that. So it isn't very common, but Ironically, I've sort of brought, this process has infected my other working relationships. I'm working on a film with Brad Payton right now. We've done a number of movies together and we actually ended up taking a similar approach. I started writing stuff early on before he shot and I, I guess I can fool myself into how much it influences the production side of things. But certainly for the director, both in the case of Brad Payton and Taylor Sheridan to have an idea of what the world sounds like while they're shooting. You have, you know, I like to think that it, the water is flowing the other way a little bit in terms of the, how music is finally influencing production a little bit. It certainly makes me feel like I'm more part of a team making the cake instead of putting the sprinkles on the icing on the cake <laughs> at the very end. Speaking of the team, so Taylor is the creator and the showrunner for Special Ops Lioness. What role does the director of a specific episode have in terms of how score is used? I think that is different from show to show, uh, uh, series to series. With Taylor, Taylor is who I deal with when it comes to music. So he is my only point of contact. Other than, than meeting the directors, I don't really have any creative conversations with them about music. And by the way, I love that. No disrespect to the directors, but the directors aren't on the project as a whole. And I think for the music to have this uniform structure and plan for an entire telling of a story in a series is uh, really helpful to me and also to the, the series itself. And tell me a little bit about what's different between doing a feature film and a series like this. I love that question because the answer to that is so different now than it was 10 or 15 years ago. You know, when I started my career, most of what I was doing was film and I worked on a few series and those series, you know, telling you how long ago this was, I remember we'd have 23 episodes a year. That doesn't happen anymore. But 
I remember I'd be scoring episode three and they hadn't written episode seven or eight yet. So there was no way for me to understand the story arc of the 23 of the entire season because the writers didn't know for sure where things were going. Cut to nowadays where your production value, your acting, your writing, everything about it is really on par with a big budget feature film, certainly in Taylor's case. And now I'm able to think of music in that way. I'm not thinking of it episodically. I'm thinking of it as a a larger format storytelling, very similar to a film. Now, for me, in a lot of ways, it's better than a film because all of the things that used to distinguish them, you know, using a real orchestra, live musicians, bigger budget thing, like those things now all apply to these series. They We have those kinds of budgets and those kinds of resources to write for. But the biggest challenge for me when I'm working on a film is it's two hours. You write four or five themes or three or four themes, and those themes live, uh, they're born in the beginning of that two hours and they die forever at the end. And so as I'm sitting writing variations on themes, and I'm sure, Louis, you can relate, you often will sit and go, okay, here are 12 really cool ways to play this theme. And I need to pick the best five and seven of them, the world will never experience because unfortunately, this is not Lord of the Rings. It's not a trilogy of nine (laughs) hours. It is a one, two hour film. And when, when you do end up with a series like Lioness, I think, I don't know what the total runtime is in the end, but it's probably six and a half hours or seven hours. So I'm actually able to incorporate all of the evolution, all 13 steps of the evolution of that theme from the beginning to its culmination, instead of having to choose, you know, five points of reference along the way. So I love it for that reason. And I I also love the idea of, you know, in the case of Mayor of Kingstown, you come back season two, season three is coming, and you can take these themes and they can continue having a life. So I, uh, I love it for that reason. So, so to answer your question, sorry for the long-winded answer, but there isn't that much difference anymore between the two. There are a lot of similarities, and I think that's not just true of music. I think that's true of other posts and of production as well and acting. It's amazing that, that the two are getting closer and closer and kind of merging. I have one director who says, you know, they're not TV series, they're series. So you have film and series. Even the terminology doesn't differentiate them the way it used to. What you're saying is really fascinating to me about series versus feature um, and the opportunities for music, because I think one of the ways that music functions to an audience is through repetition, right? And having the real estate to repeat themes and to vary them and to kind of elaborate on them is a like a whole new set of tools in a nine to 10 hour story, as opposed to a two hour story. And I'm wondering in this project, if you could walk us through some of the the connective tissue, like the glue, the themes, the things that you're iterating on over that length of time that you feel like are important to the story and that you enjoy, um, that you enjoyed writing and, and you musically you'd find interesting. The cool thing about this story is you're really experiencing lioness through two characters essentially at least the musical side of it i feel like i'm in uh, zoe saldana's head and i feel like i'm in uh, lazla's head who plays cruz so joe and cruz and cruz is the new recruit that we see recruited in the first episode 
And uh, Zoe plays Joe, who's this field agent who is responsible for being in charge of this group of young lioness spies, essentially. One of the things Taylor and I talked about early on was the idea that they are at odds, but they're at odds because they have so much in common. Joe sees herself in Cruz. She knows she's going to make all the same mistakes Joe made. She's going to start out thinking it's a very simple thing that you can check your emotions at the door, but she's at, you know, chapter seven of her themes where she's starting to realize how she's bringing this home, how it's affecting her home life. And so what's really cool, and Taylor and I did this on purpose, is we we really give them the same theme family. They have the same inner narration in their brains, in their minds that we get to witness the world through, and we get to kind of follow them experiencing the world. But the difference is they're in different timelines. Joe's much further along, Cruz is at the beginning. And as such, Cruz is kind of a time machine in that we can see Joe's history. We can see what made her who she is because of that. That's really fun. And I think what you're saying about themes, that's one of the oldest things about what we do as as media composers is the idea that you take a melody and you reuse it multiple times. I mean, stage musicals are famous for this as well. The good ones do this. And I've had people say to me, why why does that work? And why why does it matter? Well, the reason it matters is you take your favorite band, and I know this happened with the Beatles. I've heard people say this, that they'd be in love with the Beatles, the new album would come out, they'd run out and buy it, they'd put it on the turntable and play it and go, what the hell happened to the Beatles? They used to be so good, those songs are terrible. Then they listen to them seven or eight times, and by the end of the seventh or eighth listen, it's their new favorite album. So that's no accident. We as humans, we internalize melodies, we internalize motifs, and the first time you hear them, it's foreign, and gradually you learn them a little more and a little more and a little more, and eventually you're humming them and singing them. Now that actually goes the other way too, because eventually you get tired of them, not the Beatles, they were special that way, but all other music, eventually you get tired of it and you've overused it. So the goal of a film composer and a media composer is to try to get deep enough into that that you hit the sweet spot, where by the end of the project, by the end of the story, People are incredibly moved. They've internalized that melody, whether they know it or not, and they know where it's going. The trick, I guess, is scoring these scenes in a way that is relevant, but you're also, you're planting seeds and building a foundation for when you really want it to pay off. And, you know, in the first uh, episode of Lioness, there are places I use themes where the audience won't really be aware of what they are. But when they get into the later episodes in the season, they will have internalized some of those melodies and will use them in a place where it will really pay off. And they'll be, hopefully, if I've done my job right, they'll be emotionally moved and not know why, not know that that we've built the groundwork in all the previous episodes. To talk specifically about the sound of the score for a second, one of the things that's striking to me is how it's a hybrid of electronic and acoustic sounds. Anytime there's a hybrid score like this, 
there's always, I think, an, a question about well, how are we going to balance these two? What was your approach in terms of balancing some of the programmed electronic music and some of the performed acoustic instrumentation that's in the score? The whole idea of the tone of the world, and, and Taylor has some great uh, film scores in his resume, um, the, specifically Sicario is a great example. That score, Johan Johansson did an amazing job on that score, created a world that just sounds like a melange of everything they've gone through. And I think, I think we were looking for not it to sound the same, but a similar approach that that instead of this being the music using geography to delineate when we play ethnic drums or you know any kind of different non-Western elements, we we sort of looked at it as let's let's take a really expensive blender and let's put every cultural, every Americana experience, every experience that Joe would have experienced in her life, put it in a blender, and that's the sound of the show. So when we're in the Middle East, it is a melange of Americana and orchestra and electronics and uh, skin drums and, you know, all these different sounds. And when we're back, when she's in her living room, and I, I think this is in episode one where she goes home, the idea was being home doesn't mean it's electric guitar and Americana music like you'd hear on the radio it's it's through her lens just because she's physically present somewhere doesn't mean emotionally she's still not dealing with this cacophony of violence that she's kind of accumulated over the course of her life so that was definitely rather than sort of saying this is how we deploy this and this is how we deploy this we said let's make our own language our own alphabet using these letters and every word every sentence has to have all of these letters in it sometimes in different weights but always always using both and i've done other projects where i've been very literal and logical and cerebral about how i execute using different instruments this was purely emotion taylor and i said how do we feel right now i don't care where that sound comes from i don't care what that is how do we feel the, the thing for electronics for me is i find on their own they can be very two-dimensional they don't have life to them in the same way but then when you start putting piano against them or strings or some sort of organic instrument that doesn't have a consistent waveform or isn't an exact frequency or doesn't have an exact pattern the combination and the hybrid of the two makes something really special so really use that in this score and leaned on that heavily to find the sound of this world is there a particular performance practice that you grew up with that informs your composing approach is an instrument that you played growing up or a, a style of composing that you were taught? Is, is there something, is there kind of a, a fundamental practice that you go back to time and time again? Yeah, it's going to sound really stupid, but here's where I've landed. It's, you almost come full circle. Mistakes are my friend. So when I screw something up or if I pick up an instrument, I don't know how to play. I write my best stuff. If I pick up a guitar and someone's taught me the three chords that every song is on guitar, I'm a terrible composer. If I pick up a guitar and it's tuned wrong and I go to play it and it makes a weird sound, that is the seed of a new idea for me. 
piano being my main instrument, the way I write on piano is I honestly close my eyes and I put my hands down and I see what I land on and then I just kind of work my way from there because I find that um, the mistakes you make are the things that take you away from your safe place and take you into territory that you're not familiar with and then you you use your experience to sort of carve your way out of the the trench and work your way out of the weeds but I use voice memos on my phone I record three dozen things a day I sit with my electronics and I don't read the manuals and I have no idea how to use most of them and I make really terrible noises and then I realize oh if I do this that's actually kind of cool and so I feel like sometimes my scores are just uh me gluing together all of my mistakes into a cool in a cool way or um maybe it's a bit of a Jackson Pollock where you you just splatter the canvas with paint and then decide at that point what it is I will say since I started taking this approach and kind of came full circle from writing orchestrally and 16 bar melodies etc it's way more fun again I've kind of rediscovered what I loved about being writing music and sitting in a room and making sound and I do find that the less I think about it and the more I feel it the better it is the better the result I think that's a really profound insight I think a lot of professional musicians come full circle this way but I also think it's very insightful about how our industry puts us through the paces in terms of deadlines and revisions I can't imagine the amount of work that goes into an episode of this series, just in terms of sketches to revisions to orchestration to everything is so fast paced and so crunched that having that chaos built into the process, I found is such a relief, right? Because everything else has to be so hyper-organized in order to get the thing done. That if there isn't a little bit of chaos mixed in there creatively, it can start to sound stale. I mean, are there any times making this series where your process didn't work and you had to take a step back and be like, oh, you know what? I I think this isn't working. Let's problem solve around it and, and come up with another solution. All the time. That is, again, that's also one of the things that ends up, well, two things. Sometimes when you come to the realization or who you're working for comes to the realization it's not working and you go back to the drawing board, it's not all lost. Even if you go down a different direction, you've already determined something that doesn't work or elements that don't work. So most of the time, if not all the time, you end up with something better. The other part of that is realizing sometimes that really good music doesn't mean really good score. So our job is to meld with the story and you don't want the audience absorbing a visual and an audio experience simultaneously. You want them absorbing a story. And that relies on the fact that sometimes what you would choose to write in the music to make the music the best it could be is not what what is the best for the storytelling. And I've had that happen a lot of times. That's a really hard thing to realize. And then you kind of go, well, if I was writing this for the stage and it was an orchestra at Royal Albert Hall, I would do it this way. But because we've got a a massive one and a half page soliloquy from this character, I, I have to support that. But when done well, you do actually realize that 
and I find this all the time, the character is delivering their line like a, like a melody. Like when someone speaks a sentence, it sounds like it's in a key. It, it sounds like a melody going up and down with their inflections, et cetera. And those have very specific pitches. So a lot of times when I hear my music not to picture, it often doesn't sound complete because I've, I've really scored a soloist who was singing on stage and I'm the piano player playing the accompaniment. I really appreciate what you said about the difference between a good piece of music and a good piece of score. They're not always aligned in terms of what their functions are. And I think a lot of people get into this job because they love music. And then they realize this is a lot different than making music. Was there anything about your introduction to this job that made you particularly drawn to writing score as opposed to making music for other types of medium or other uh, performance opportunities? And I'm sure you do both, but is there, was there any moment where you thought, oh, this is, this is my job. This is what I do. And this is why I do it. So when I was a kid, my parents put us all in piano lessons very young. And I remember I would always write, uh, you know, I was that kid who the piano teacher would say, learn these two lines or these four lines of Mozart. I would learn the first bar or the first two bars, and then I would make up the rest. I would just somehow thinking she wouldn't notice, like she didn't know how this piece went, you know? <laughs> and then I, that was the part I loved. I didn't love playing Mozart's piece. I loved sitting there and making things up. And my mother used to rearrange furniture in the house every so often. And I remember when she would move the piano to a different wall, looking out a different window. I think it was then that I realized I was kind of writing what I was seeing. I was responding to the visuals and it was affecting how I was writing because you move the piano, I look out a different window, I'm writing totally different music, I'm inspired in a different way. I think for me, there's an honesty to emotion in music that I have found the most in film music. I feel there's a depth and a layered emotional content in film music that isn't always in other forms of music. So I think that's why I was always drawn to it. I grew up listening to John Williams, E.T., Raiders, Star Wars, all that you know stuff that so many composers in our generations did. But credit to him, he, ha he found a way of really capturing an emotional dimension in storytelling that I hadn't heard before. And while the style of music has changed, I think that really set a bar for how music can score as you said earlier, elements of story that, that aren't on screen. I've always been really drawn to that, and I feel like it, uh, I hope it's present in my music. You know, I will tell you one, one story with Taylor. When I was working on Mare, again, early on, I wrote a melody. I had gotten some news of a childhood friend uh, passing and sat down and just played something. And then I sent him 10 tracks and I kind of put that one, nestled it into the group of 10 tracks and no context, nothing. They were all, they were 10 emotional pieces of music, but he immediately reached out and said, whoa, what's with number seven? Like that, that's really powerful. I can't tell you in words what made number seven different than the other nine, because as far as I was concerned, there was nothing in that DNA that anyone could have picked up on, but he did. So music's kind of amazing in that way that you you can't describe it why we react the way we do and 
I really do think we're born with a certain language of music, of knowing when something's sad, when something's happy. I've actually been to visited and stayed with tribes in Papua New Guinea who had no prior experience listening to Western music. They didn't know the major, minor, they didn't know any of that stuff. And yet they knew when I played them something, whether it was happy, sad, exciting, they, they were able to pull emotion from it without any prior schooling or knowledge. So I really do think that music is honestly a language that isn't a mistake to call it that. And I think it does convey emotion in a way that is instinctual and not learned. And I think film music is for me, the closest I've experienced to that, both listening and creating. Andrew, can we go a little deeper on the main titles? You've talked about layering in the score with the scenes, with the main titles or the, you know, the opening sequence, you really are center stage with score. And so I can imagine that's both freeing, but also a different kind of challenge. Yeah. So let me tell you, the main, the main title is a great example of throwing everything in a blender, all these different influences. So the main title, I sat down with three amazing percussionists, all with different specialties from different parts of the world. And we, we sat down in a studio and I had written 25 different key signatures, all really strange key signatures. I was like, no 4-4, four, four. it's all going to be these different, odd, throw you slightly off key signatures. And I had given them a starting pattern and said, here's the pattern I'm thinking. And I stood out in the middle of the three booths and basically conducted and said, okay, everyone start on the main pattern, do this. Anyways, the main titles was based on a 22-8, 22 eighth notes per bar pattern that I'd written and thought i don't know if this will ever be usable it's pretty weird and i don't know if anyone will ever grasp onto it but i i did it and kind of dug it so i sat down after that and thought okay let me see if i can write something orchestrally to this that i can get the orchestra at abbey road to play to and did that and threw it to taylor and added in some electronics and he said oh i really like this it's not dark enough or dirty enough or exotic enough. So I, I said, okay. So I put this cello part at the beginning, which kind of has a slight Arabic feel to it, just in terms of the sharps and flats. And it's not, it's not following a tempered, equal tempered tuning. It's slightly off and it's very ornamental. And yeah, that's kind of how it was born. And, um, and then the electronics, just a lot of feedback again, Louis mistakes where I had plugged something in and it, it started to feed back and I was like, oh no, I got to turn this off and quickly turned it off. And then when I listened back to my recording of it, went, oh, this is cool. <laughs> let me, let me mess with this because this is really neat. 
the whole idea of this, the music of the series is that you're always slightly uncomfortable. There is no 100% victory. There's no 100% failure. There's no getting through the gauntlet completely without scars and open wounds. So the opening title was meant to be confident and, and grungy and, but assured in its limp, if that makes any sense. So, um, it's not a march. It's sort of got this funny wobble to the wheel, but, but it's confident in that and it's owning it and it's going to power through. I love these moments when the curtains peeled back and we learn that this piece of music is it's actually in 22.8 or it's in this because I listening to it and watching it that doesn't really that's that to me that's not the main takeaway I do remember being like oh this is this is a little mixed meter but it's funny because like even the people like me who go in and they're like I'm only going to listen to the music of this pat this time around I'm only gonna the emotion of what you're doing is the it's just it has such gravity like it pulls your attention away so much more and and your mental focus away from all the music things so I, i'm always really like pleasantly surprised um every time something deeply and profoundly weird <laughs> musically could become so you know normalized because it it just works and it's got this emotion it's got this feel so i think in that sense the the main title sequence was really successful to me because hearing you explain it i was like oh man did, did that actually did i remember that being in 22.8 but no yeah congratulations on sneaking in a, a very very cool and ornate and off-kilter time signature <laughs> thank you well that makes me really happy to hear you say that i had that experience with the directors where we sit down to do a screening not not evaluating music only but you do like a playback of a show and or a film and the director goes oh i completely forgot to take notes I just got and it's like great that means you have no notes because you got absorbed in it and it's working yeah i love i love hearing that people kind of get absorbed into it and don't kind of the medium and the the method becomes invisible that's a good reaction can you tell us a little bit about this q team and how musically it fits into the the larger story and and the characters yeah so a lot of time when i'm reading scripts and thinking about music it's funny, I don't think I've ever told Taylor this, but I envision scenes that aren't necessarily in the scripts, but that I imagine the characters interacting. So for example, in Linus, you've got this QRF team, quick reaction force, a term I learned on this, uh, on this show. And you realize that if one of them gets into trouble, they all come. It's like your wingman times five. They're all following you into any crazy fight, any bar fight, anything that happens, they will be on your side. It might take them a bit to get there, but they'll be, uh, they'll be there with you. And so the, that had me sort of imagining one person trekking through a forest and then, you know, they get joined on the right, you know, almost like you picture fighter jets where you picture one jet and then they get joined and then joined and then joined, and then you have a formation. So thematically, I wrote this melody and um, call it the team theme. And the first time you hear it in this cue, 
uh, it's just one lone voice, one sound playing the melody. The second time it's harmonized. Then a third harmony gets added, and then you've got four-part harmony the fourth time. And, and it's really symbolic of kind of feeling like everyone is eventually going to get there and have your back um, so it gets used throughout the series but that's an it's a good example actually of how taylor and i tried to think of themes for this it's not a character it's not about one person and this whole team theme can apply to family it can apply to the actual qrf team it can apply to the white house group it can apply to so many characters and instances and again, I don't know if anyone's going to kind of listen to it and say, oh, this is what it represents to them, but that's what it represented to us. And that's how we sort of felt it had a place in the, the family of themes for the story. To me, that's another example of how the depth of your creative process, you know, in terms of imagining scenes that weren't there and it seems to really serve your writing. And, and I also think it's a, it sounds like it's a real testament to your collaborative relationship with Taylor. That kind of imagining it, it seems like it's only possible if there's a lot of trust there. I think it's really cool and it's really um, speaks volumes to both your process and also the relationship that, that you both have. I mean, a combination of trust and time, it's a massive luxury to have the uh, license to fail and I've remembered that working with people is recognizing that some of the best work comes from finding the seven ways not to do it before you, you fall upon the eighth way you never would have found if you've take, taken the easy path. So, you know, the, the whole uh, symbolism and the idea of throwing spaghetti on the wall against the wall and seeing what sticks is really true with Taylor. And I think I'm really lucky that I, I have that trust with him and and with Brad Payton, who I'm working with right now, same thing, a long history of working together. And you see failure as a really good try and let's try something else instead of them thinking, oh, I guess they're not capable of doing this. So I actually think that if you don't throw yourself outside of your comfort zone, it's really hard to come up with something that you can feel is your best work. And then the time thing, you know, starting when I start writing to the script stage and I've got six months until I actually have to record it for real, I have the luxury of going down a bad path for a week and it not working. For me, that's one of the best things about getting started early is I can do a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't work before I actually have to send anything forward. Well, as we said, this season is still airing. Without getting any spoilers, Andrew, can you tell us if we're going to see more of this? It's such a strange time with the strike, the writer's strike and the actor's strike. Yeah, I, I, uh, I can't tell you anything beyond this season at this point. Well, we are enjoying this season. Uh, on that note, we're going to call it a wrap. Andrew, really great having you here. Wonderful talking with you. Thanks for having this chat with us. 
Thank you, Louis. Thank you, Skid. Great to chat with you guys. I'm a big fan of the podcast and uh, really honored to be on. Listeners, I always appreciate your feedback. You'll find my contact info on our website, blowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. You'll also find past episodes and links to all of our social media, so check it out. Andrew, where else are we going to see more? So upcoming, we have season three of Mayor of Kingstown next year. It'll come out. I've got a, a series I did with director, writer, uh, Richie Mehta, who um, we did Delhi Crime together a few years ago, which won the International Emmy for Best Drama. So we have a project called Poacher about elephant poaching. In addition to Lioness, I'm currently working on a film called Atlas, the one I mentioned with uh, director Brad Payton. We've previously collaborated on Journey to the Mysterious Island, San Andreas, Rampage. So uh, Atlas is the name of the film starring uh, Jennifer Lopez, amazing sci-fi film, and it'll come out next year. And we will watch for this and listen as well, Andrew. This is a lot of fun. Closing credits, thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Juan for our logo, and to all our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcast and tell your friends. Thanks again from Below the Line. Andrew, before I let you go, I want to talk a little more about Mayor of Kingstown. score is the grimiest hook that I've ever heard. It plays in my head throughout the episode, even every time I think about the show. Give us a teaser on how that came about. Okay, that's really funny to hear you say that. Years ago, I was attached to score a film called 17 Days of Winter, a script that was written by Frank Pearson. I think the last thing he ever wrote before he passed away. Frank Pearson is probably best known for Cool Hand Luke that uh, famous film. So I went and I watched Cool Hand Luke as a film. Love Paul Newman, huge fan. And when I got hired to do Mayor of Kingstown, Taylor sent me the scripts and I, for some reason, there's a scene in Cool Hand Luke where I picture them all on the side of the road with pickaxe and shovels and their striped uh, inmate outfits. And they're swinging these, these pickaxes on the side of the road. And so that theme, I, I immediately imagined what would they be humming? What would they be doing? And that it was that, mm, mm, and this idea of this group of inmates doing that. And that's how that, that theme came about is that it was the very first piece of music I wrote for Taylor about mayor of Kingstown. I, I sent him 10 sketches at the very beginning and said, Here's 10 quick ideas after a fast read. Let's start here. And he loved that and immediately hooked onto it. And he said, that's the theme, you know, very quick. He doesn't mince, he doesn't hum and haw. He just says, that's it. We're going with that committed boom. And then a bunch of the elements of that, not the vocals, but a bunch of the instruments were actually recorded in the penitentiary that they filmed in. So I got in there with a bunch of instruments and musicians and filmed a lot of the accompaniment 
uh, not the orchestra, but a lot of the percussive instruments um, for the theme were recorded in the prison where they shot. See, I'm hearing it in my head now. I'm going to have to go play that. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. Anytime, Skip. Skip.